Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am so honored to be able to present today's guest. Jim Shelton is the Chief Investment and Impact Officer at Blue Meridian Partners. Blue Meridian is a philanthropy that is using a pioneering model for finding scalable solutions to problems that trap America's young people and families in poverty and limit their economic mobility. We talk a lot about uh, Blue Meridian in this interview and its approach, but I also want you to know a bit about Jim. You may not know his name, but I can assure you that people who are involved directly in the work to expand economic opportunity for all people do know his name. One respected leader said, quote, when I think about trailblazers, I think of Jim Shelton. And that person is not alone. When legendary investor and venture capitalist Jim Doerr needed a leader for his philanthropy dedicated to improving schools, he called Jim Shelton. Later, Jim managed portfolios at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that ranged from 2 to $3 billion in investments targeted at increasing high school and college graduation rates. When Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan needed someone to stand up and run their foundation's education group, they asked Jim to do that work and to be its president. And when President Obama and Secretary Arne Duncan needed someone to help lead the U.S. Department of Education, they asked Jim to be the department's assistant deputy secretary and later its deputy secretary and chief operating officer. And after that, when President Obama created the My Brother's Keeper initiative to ensure that all youth, including boys and young men of color, have opportunities to improve their life outcomes and overcome barriers to success, you got it. He asked Jim Shelton to be its founding executive director. And in announcing that selection, President Obama described Jim accurately as, quote, a champion for children who has dedicated his life to finding new and better ways to level the playing field for every student, no matter his or her zip code. Jim and I recorded this episode on Friday, October 15th. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Jim Shelton, welcome to Staffer. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here, Jim. I am so honored uh, to have you as my guest today. I've got a lot of questions for you. Um, but as you may know, I like to start uh, my interviews finding out where people came from uh, yeah. and where they grew up. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I actually am born and raised in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Southeast D.C. Um, and uh, I'm proud to have moved back home after uh, a couple of dozen years outside the <laughs> outside town. And now tell me about your family. Um, you know, did you did you learn public service and, and commitment yeah, I, to community from them? Yeah, I did. So um, uh, in, in different ways from both of them. So my mom, uh, more traditionally, she actually worked for government. Uh, she was also very active, did a lot of work with uh, she worked at the administration on aging at the end of her career. Um, she did a lot of work um, in the community, um, helping out senior citizens. She was on the board of the National Caucus on the Black Aged. Um, and my dad in a very different way. My dad worked for the post office and drove a cab. And what I learned from him is he, I don't ever remember my father dropping by somebody on the side of the road that he didn't stop to help. And both of those ethics had a really big influence on how I think about like your op your responsibility to stop and help in any way you can. Um, and in the different levers that you have at your disposal to actually try and have an impact. Yeah. So uh, after high school, you went off to Atlanta to attend Morehouse College. 
Um, you subsequently earned uh, a couple of degrees from Stanford, uh, both in business and in education. And I don't normally linger on people's academic uh, experiences, but I do want to ask you about Morehouse because it's a unique and important institution. And I listened to an interview that you gave where you described yourself as an ordinary man with extraordinary opportunities. And I would think that Morehouse is probably one of those. Um, So can you talk to us about the experience and what it means to be a Morehouse man? Yeah, so... um you know, one of the things that was a part of my life growing up in D.C. was the dichotomy of growing up in southeast D.C., which for folks who don't know, that's the part of town that people tell you not to go to um, if you're not from the city. And um, and then going to private schools um, through a series of opportunities and my parents' hard work that had me going to the literally the other side of town, two trains, two buses, et cetera, et cetera, to get there um, uh, and very different contexts. And one of the things that Morehouse offered me was to be, and, and sorry, and I should be clear, Southeast is almost exclusively black, and where I went to schools were largely white um, and often hostile. And what Morehouse offered me was the opportunity to have an environment that was uh, where I was going to be around a bunch of young black men and young women, because Spelman is directly across the street, who were equally focused and had uh, on the future and the opportunities and the way that they were going to have impact in the world without the dissonance of going back and forth between the troubles that you find in a community like Southeast and the the, um, focus and opportunity that great education provides. Um, The other thing that happened for me at Morehouse is I, you know, it's really interesting. You go to an all black college, but you don't necessarily expect it to be one of the most diverse places that you've ever been. But you show up at Morehouse and you've got people who are there on Pell and you've got people who are third generation college uh, going student, uh, third generation to go to college. Kids showing up on campus with BMWs and kids showing up with a, their clothes literally in a garbage bag. And and uh, the diversity of experiences within the black community um, that you find give me a whole new perspective on all the different ways there are to be black and all the different ways there are to be positive and all the different ways that black people have contributed. And then I'll, I'll end on two, two last things. One is um, Morehouse helps you to really redefine your understanding of how black people have impacted the world as one of the first steps. And it brings that to life to you on campus. And so one of the unique things about the Morehouse experience is you have um, what's called chapel every week where they bring in people Um, from the outside to speak, uh, to talk about their life experiences, but also talk about their perspectives on the world from business, from um, the pulpit, from all kinds of different things. Um, Majority of people with the black experience, but not exclusively people with the black experience. And that kind of rounding exposure to shift your aspiration about what's possible um, was really, really important to my, to to me. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds extraordinary. Um, And so you, you gained that experience and that perspective and, and the skills that came along with all of the, the academic work. Um, you entered your professional career. You spent time uh, doing a few different things. You worked for McKinsey. You worked in uh, the energy sector, but you eventually got to education. Uh, so tell me about that turn and how you found that as a, as a cause where you've spent your life. So actually, it was kind of the other way around. So uh, when I was in third grade, um, I wanted to be a teacher. And my mom was like, no, you need to make some money. 
Um, and I was good in math and science. And someone told me that engineers could use math and science to make a lot of money. And so I went to school to Morehouse for computer science and engineering. And and I, I did like computers. I, I really enjoyed it and all of those good things. But I it was very much to me a means to an end that in the end, I, what I was supposed to be doing was making this money and then I could do good things in the world. And so I started off down that path. I studied computer science. I dropped engineering because I ran out of cash, which is a much longer story I won't get into today. But let's just say I didn't take full advantage of the Morehouse academic experience when I first got there. And and uh, and then I left and I did computer work, as you described. And then um, but all along the way and then I and then I um, uh, went to business school and and that's school. But all along the way, I'm like. Uh, child youth advocate, working youth emergency shelter, substitute teaching, like all of the things that are keeping me in the thing that drives my passion. And so when I went to when I went to, to ed school, I was like, when I went to graduate school, I was like, well, I know education is the long term, so I better get that degree now because I don't want to have to come back, um, which was an adventure in and of itself because they, they call it the dual degree program. It's really a two degree program. Um, <laughs> uh, and then and then that led me I went, after that to go to McKinsey and then I was about to become a partner at McKinsey and the person who was my uh, was called a development group leader mentor at the time said, you know, at a certain point, you have to stop preparing to do things and just do them. And he meant it pretty innocuously. And I quit. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't quit in that meeting. But two weeks later, I <laughs> two weeks later, I was gone and um, thought I was going to go into direct service and instead wound up finding a group that was planning to invest a large amount of money in education uh, and using new technologies to actually to help transform education. And I thought that was a good match for me. And so that's how I took my first step in. And then I worked in helping to open and run um, schools in the high poverty neighborhoods that would be high achieving. And then I kept going with that work, um, uh, working with uh, in the nonprofit sector and as a, in the, in the philanthropic sector and then back in government and et cetera, everything else, you know. Yeah. So how, uh, how did you come to find philanthropy as the best channel yeah. for you to, you know, drive your passion and be able to, you know, insert your skills, right. At, in the right places. Sure. Um, so I think that there are, um, uh, three things that became more apparent to me over time. Um, number one is that um, good things in the social sector are often starved for capital. Um, that there are people doing great work that is actually transformative and because the money doesn't find them, um, they don't ever get beyond a certain point. Uh, I think the second thing that was not apparent to me at the beginning was that that is because the, the social sector market is broken in a lot of different ways. Um, and what I mean by that is money doesn't necessarily flow to the things that work. Just working is not actually good enough to make sure that you're going to get more public resources than something else. Um, uh, uh, there is not uh, R, a robust R&D ecosystem that provides research and then develops new things and then supports entrepreneurs to take those new ideas and turn them into products that work for the field. So, you know, I talk a lot about how defense has an $80 billion federal R&D budget and health has an $80 billion federal R&D budget and education has um, one, maybe two, depending on how you count NSF and a couple of other things. And so the kind of resources that are going into producing that pipeline of innovation and then turning it into the next tools and resources of the field doesn't exist in the government the way it does in other sectors. So that makes the private sector investing even more important. And the third is that in the social sector, things tend to move a little more slowly. 
And so even though there's a lot of experimentation happening day to day in classrooms and things all over the place, the systematic approach to that about how you take that and turn it into things that are going to work at scale for people um, is not something that's built in. And so someone taking the private resources, filling in the gap where government necessarily isn't at a time and moving at a pace that can keep things moving. So these things that are multi-generational can at least become generational. Um, that's why I thought philanthropy was important. Well, you have worked for uh, and are today working at just premier philanthropic institutions. And I want to talk about Blue Meridian um, in just a, a couple of minutes. You were at the Gates Foundation as a program director um, in the education field when President Barack Obama is elected in 2008, takes office in 2009, and you joined the Department of Education, first as assistant deputy secretary, where you oversaw the Office of Innovation and Improvement. You managed a portfolio that included uh, the department's competitive programs, such as something called Investing in Innovation Fund, um, and other things like teacher quality, learning technology, et cetera. Um, you were elevated later to Deputy Secretary and Chief Operating Officer, where you oversaw all of the operational aspects of the department. Um, my first question for you is, how did that, uh, you know, how did your journey take you there? Did, was that something that you saw? You know, did you look at, at the election of the new president and think, I want to go for that? Or did somebody tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, there's this opportunity that you'd be good for? Um, and both. Um, there have been, you know, uh, I, I, you know, people believe different things. I believe the universe sends you signals when you're on the right path. And there have been two times in my life when I was considering a professional move. And literally in the moment that I picked up my phone, the phone to call the person to talk about it, they were on the other end already. And this was one of them. I, I was working for the Gates Foundation. Um, I was thinking about how I could be helpful to this new president who had come on board. Um, I happened to know that, um, like everyone did, I guess, that he was from Chicago. And I happened to have a good relationship with um, who was a person who was not Secretary Arnie Duncan at the time, but was the former CEO, the current CEO of Chicago, Arnie Duncan. And I was saying, you know, am I going to reach out? Am I not going to reach out? And I went to reach out to him and he was on my phone. And um, Amazing. And, and, and he said, you know, you may have heard that uh, my name has been circulated. And if I do, would you be interested in, in helping? And I, of course, said, absolutely. I was just getting ready to call you to ask. Um, and so that's how that that is how, literally how that happened. Um, and uh, it was phenomenal um, for a number of reasons. Obviously, one, to be able to lean into that administration and have uh, the opportunity for national impact. The second was to do it with Arnie Duncan, who I have to say, um, Arnie is like in my top 10 human beings in the world, not just uh, uh, government leaders. And um, to know that you're doing that work with someone who you can always count on trying to do the right thing, whether they get it right or not, is not the, no one ever does. But always trying to do the right thing, always the person in the room who brings the conversation back to, yes, but what is going to be best for the students and the children? Um, that was a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. So prior to that, you'd been involved in organizations of various sizes. Um You'd started businesses, um, you had uh, you know, built up programs, but this is a, w- was a new deal. Uh, something like 4,000 employees, an annual budget in the neighborhood of $68 billion. 
What did you learn about leading an organization of that size and scope that's different than leading an organization where maybe it's still possible to know everybody's name? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think that, uh, the first and most important lesson is that, uh, the culture and the climate matter most. You, you know, it's really important to set the culture well when you're in a small organization and get everyone rolling in the same direction and all that good stuff. But to be totally honest, in a small organization, you can, you know, pick each person, right? And and so if you hire, I call them good, good people, like they're not only good at what they do, but they're good people to have around and they want to help their teammates and all that good stuff. And you could get away with all kind of cultural sins if you have like 20 good, good people working together. Yeah. In an organization of 4,000 people, many of whom got there for a variety of reasons, there's no way to have all people who fit that character, who fit that description. And so then what becomes important is what is the general context you set for what good behavior looks like for what the mission being aligned with the mission looks like. And, and then you have to be really intentional with that many people about how you send signals about what exactly those things are that make you valuable. And what was interesting to me was the first and most important signal is that you actually are valuable. Mm. (laughs) And what I mean by that is in, you, you can imagine that at the federal government, it becomes, and you're like moving these grant programs, billions of dollars floating out, you know, national reports going out, the education's just not getting better. It, it's not, it would not be hard to, to get to this illusion about whether what you're doing actually is having an impact. Yeah. Or even, you know, get more precise in the pro- office I ran, you know, it's a competitive grant office, but those people don't get to make any decisions about who gets a grant, right? You use peer reviewers and there's a structure and oftentimes the, the, the margin of error is really tiny. And so, you know, getting jaded about whether you're making a difference about who's, what you're funding and what you're not funding, like really easily lose touch with that. And being able to show people that what they do actually matters um, and to be able to elevate heroes within the organization so that, that people can see that that matters, being able to highlight that people who make the organization work better and that help their colleagues, that they matter, um, and that these are the behaviors that you want people to demonstrate because it does change things not only day to day, but for the world. Like that is like real work in an organization of 4,000 people. Um, and, uh, and yet I think it is the most important thing to get right and much harder in a big organization than it is in a small one. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. Um, because, you know, let's recognize, especially if you work in the government, there's a lot of baggage that, that comes along with that, uh, from the public, right? Like they, they think you're all the DMV, which, you know, is sort of the quintessential, (laughs) right? Government bureaucracy that people hate on. Yeah. Um, you know, every every staffer, whenever they become a staffer, learns some things about what it means to be a staffer in an environment that's, you know, unique. It's not exactly yeah. the same as being an employee. I'm curious, what did you learn early on in, in your career as a staffer that, you know, you think other staffers, you know, aspiring or current yeah. uh, should know? Yeah, so um, 
Number one, especially if you're coming in as a political employee, the number one thing to know is the the top career people are going to be as good as any play, people that you're going to work with anywhere in your career. Uh, and I and they will know more. They will be able to do more than many of the people you encounter in your career. Um, and so um, respect that, treat it right and then leverage it. Um, is what I would say, because those people will be determinative about whether or not you're successful. Um, uh, the second thing I would say is um, to know the rules of the game. And what I mean by that is a lot of political appointees in particular, but even oftentimes people who go in in more traditional career positions, they come in with a like an idea, the thing. There's this thing that they came to do. And there's they're completely focused on that one thing and forget about the rest of the organization and all the other things that have to happen on a daily basis, the other resources that are flowing out and miss huge opportunities for leverage, as well as making, again, other people feel valued, like the part things that they do actually matter. So having the whole picture, but most importantly, knowing enough about how the place works to leverage it is critically important. I career staff used to all be like, why do you know that? And I used to say, because you have to know the rules to play the game, right? Yeah. And and by understanding the rules, you are able to do things that other people go, well, you can't do that. Actually, I can. I, I, I probably can. L- let's talk about it. And yeah. all of a sudden, everybody goes, oh, maybe you can. <laughs> the, you know, the number of things that are held into status quo position based on urban myth <laughs> like is, right. it, it would surprise everyone. And so being able to, in an informed way and a respectful way, ask questions because you actually know something about how the place actually works can allow you to unlock opportunities that taking either not knowing and so being played or uh, thinking, you know, when you actually don't know and understand either one of those will lose you credibility um, and make you ineffective. Well, it's, uh, I mean, both of your points are just so well made. My observation of career staff in in the federal administration, I mean, I I view them like the national parks. I mean, it is a resource for the country, um, all of the expertise that they have. Um, But to your point, there's also a difference between what, you know, what's allowed and, and Versus what's just a lesson that was learned 10 years before you got there that now has grown into like a, a rule, right? That people operate on. That's that's not a rule. It was just a bad experience. And we need to like get past that if we can open the apertures for our thinking. Yep. And then can I throw in a third one? Yeah. The, the, thir- the, the third one is to hold on to why not. Um, and And what I mean by that is um, there are plenty of opportunities for things that might actually improve things. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, peer reviewers, like I said, they are, they, they are determinative of like whether who's going to get resources, who's not going to get resources. The quality of those peer reviewers drives everything around competitive programming. And at the time there was no database of people who had peer reviewed oh, for wow. the department. And what their history was. Did they show up for their conversations? Did they give wild scores? You know, and, and not to not to be biased against folks, but to say, did these people do the job fundamentally um, when they were in role? Um, and um, were they excited about it in a way that says we should be going back to them? Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a thought that you couldn't actually do that. 
And I was like, why not? <laughs> and and being able to stay with the why not long enough to get to the answer of, oh, we can do that. And guess what? There's actually one that was already done for one program. And it's one of the big programs. And so we could actually leverage that to find people for the other programs. And, and all yeah. of a sudden, you've got a completely different caliber of person. Uh, more regularly, you know, because like used to be something like 15% of, of reviewers would start and not finish. We got that down to 2% wow. in two years, right? Wow. Um, so. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, that's a really good piece of advice. Um, while you were at the Department of Education, you were asked by President Obama to co-lead the My Brother's Keeper initiative which at the time uh, it started as an interagency initiative. Uh, it is now part of the Obama Foundation, and you are still a part of it. It is dedicated to addressing persistent opportunity gaps uh, and to improving educational life outcomes faced by boys and young men of color. Um, it's no wonder to me why the president asked you uh, to, to co-lead that. Um, and it does a number of different things to uh, expand professional opportunities and exposure. Um, but mentorship is also a component of it. Uh, young men mentoring each other and getting access uh, to successful mentors. And I'm curious, is there advice that you give as a mentor? And did you have a mentor in your life that was impactful uh, to you? I, I do have advice that I give as a mentor, but I don't, I don't have a lot of pat advice, if you will. Um, okay. I think that people's circumstances are, are different. Um, and, uh, so besides what I'll call like the golden rules of, you know, listen, be kind, work hard. <laughs> um, uh, which is what I tell my, my, my sons early on. Right. Um, uh, there's not a lot else that I say is kind of a generic rule. The, the thing that I, um, try to do as a mentor is to ensure that folks realize that their potential is much greater than typically they realize that, that, that we as humans are in some ways, there's a few who aren't, but most of us pull up short. We like, you know, it's kind of the reason that personal training is such a big business, right? Cause left to your own devices, you're not going to get that last one, right? But when somebody's there saying, you can get this last one. Oh, yeah. wait, you could probably get two more, <laughs> right? right? And then you do, and then you get up and you feel fantastic. Getting people to acknowledge that effect and then build it in to the way that they think about themselves so that that discount gets smaller and smaller over time where they believe in things, big things that are possible, and they believe that they can actually accomplish them. They know if they do it, whatever, whatever they're willing to put into it is what they can probably get out of it. As long as this is the third thing, they actually know something about how to get something done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, those, those three or four things, actually, I, I will say my four core questions are, what do you believe? What are you willing to do? What do you know how to do? And can you execute? And I think that those four questions allow me to enter many, many conversations with people who I would consider mentees um, and almost always wind up in them discovering for themselves um, a really important path. 
Man, that is such a combination of inspiration and tactical planning. I mean, that what you just outlined there was a really great summation of how to be a good mentor uh, to someone. Was there anyone, by the way, who? So what I would say is, what I, what I would say is, I don't think I had a, a a a mentor. I had many people who I drew from. You know, I was I was like uh, when I talk about extraordinary opportunity, um, uh, uh, I had extraordinary opportunity. Um, oftentimes, quite by accident. You know, my I went to school all the way across town, and so when I was on my way back, I was like, if I was the right time of day, I would just stop downtown to where my mom's office was to catch a ride to last leg back home. And she'd still be working. So wander around her floor. I wander into a room that happens to have date myself, all the old mainframes in it. And there's a guy in there at this terminal, you know, who's happy because he's sitting there watching these computers work to tell me about computers. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I, the most important mentors I probably had were the guys who mentored me when my father, my parents, my father went to a part of Southeast DC, which is much rougher than where we were living when my parents were together. And uh, probably the most important mentors I had were the guys who showed me how to navigate those streets. Mm. And someone asked me um, recently, you know, how, Having to have had that experience, how, having had fighting in my background, have, has that changed the way I, you know, parent? And I said it changed the way I do everything, right? Um, because human instincts, even though they play out in different contexts, are very much the same. And in that context, you see them in their raw form. And so those mentors were critical to me, both for my basic survival, but because they taught me how to expect human behavior to play out. Um, I'll, I'll make it concrete. One of my expressions is. Everyone talks tough until they get slapped for the first time. Mm. And you can you can imagine that in lots of different contexts. Yeah. Um, and it is it is always true. Uh, right. uh, and and then you quickly find out, well, who are your real reliable allies? Right. right? Um, yeah. In every context. Yeah. Oh, that's um, that's impactful. Um, I want to um, ask you about. The next step in your career. So when you when you left the Department of Education, you were asked uh, to stand up and build the education group for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. When you when you started, I, uh, as I understand it, uh, that group had zero employees. And when you left it, there had were four. Seven, there were four. Okay, four. Uh, you, and you were one of them. So yes. three others. Um, uh, when you left, it was. Uh, uh, there were 70 people. And I have to tell you, um, you know, as I was reading about your experience there and, the, and then when you left, I mean, I, for listeners, if you ever want to know what an organization looks like when it, when someone they love is leaving it, go back and read how CZI talked about Jim Shelton and his contributions to that organization and that initiative when he left. Um, really incredible um, and, and flattering. Uh deservedly so jim my my question for you is you now had this experience in government so how did that you know what did you take from that that informed what you thought an, this philanthropic endeavor should uh, do yeah so um i think probably the most important thing that i learned in government was what true inclusivity and what true scale looked like and so um 
I, I remember the first, one of my first meetings at the department very early on, we were in the secretary's office. It was so early that the inaugural flags were still up on the Capitol. And, um, and I turned around at the end of the meeting, looked out the window, was looking at these flags and realized we just had a meeting in which we spent 20 minutes talking about Montana. And I realized that was probably 20 times more time than I'd spent talking about Montana in my life. <laughs> right. And so this notion of when you say all, like the whole country, that that is really the whole country, um, uh, uh, meant a lot, uh, yeah. meant a lot. And it also just reminded me of despite how much money philanthropists may have access to. And we all think, oh, my God, like that's one of the richest people in the world relative to what it takes to run our society. It still drops in the sea. And so the idea that that the humility that needs to come with that um, is really important, but also the strategy that needs to come with that, because in the end, you are still trying to shape a river with a stick. Right. Right. And, and so uh, it just made me bring that lens to, well, how do you actually leverage these philanthropic dollars to create the opportunity for many more people to be involved in solving many more problems and for that to happen in a way that they collectively build and unlock the public resources that are ultimately responsible for addressing inequality in this country. And that, that shift, um, you know, I had notions of it previously, but it really was clear to me um, after I after I spent time in government. And so now, like as I am at Blue Meridian, which we'll talk about at some point. Yeah, right now, you know, actually, that's, that's what I want right. to ask about next. So please. So, you know, my entire focus is on um, economic and social mobility broadly. Right. And if you look at our framework, you'll see remnants of My Brother's Keeper and Promised Neighborhoods and things like that, where we take the spectrum from frankly, birth or pre-birth all the way through to thriving adulthood and say, what are the milestones that actually are most determinative in someone's life? What are the impediments that can get most in the way? And how do we find solutions that either allow you to capture the opportunity or avoid or mitigate the impediment? Um, and then what are the environmental factors that actually have the biggest impact, either giving you head uh, tailwinds or, or providing headwinds that get in the way? And in that context, you're looking for things that have outsized impacts on people's lives at those stages and trying to figure out how to get them to scale. Well, the reality is philanthropy can get them to a certain point, but almost in every case, you need both a supportive policy context and you need public funding for it ultimately to get to everyone. Right. Um, so whether that is um, getting foster kids uh, um, that are hard to place into homes. Sure. You can have a wonderful program like Wendy's wonderful kids that trains recruiters to find families that really want to have these uh, kids in that predicament in, in their families, um, and do the different, the different kind of placement work that allows that to happen more quickly. Um, and philanthropy can fund so much of that, but the reality is all 50 states need it. Um, and that turns into a giant check because there unfortunately are kids who need that service every single year. So if you're not thoughtful about how you make the case for it with your philanthropy and then how the policy begins to support it and then how it turns into something that the government sees as a normal way of doing business, then you have failed your task in the end. And I can do that at every step. And so Blue Meridian, which I, I am 
you know, honored to know uh, and and work with as a as a consultant. Um, has a unique approach, and I think when a lot of people hear philanthropy, they hear it um, sort of a, a, as you said, often like a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money to be delivered to an organization or a you know a, a, a group of people that are doing good work. But Blue Murdy is doing more than just money. It is a number of of other things, from selection of partners to identifying goals and measuring progress and providing them additional supports. So can you talk a bit about kind of the theory and operations behind Blue Meridian Partners? Sure. And then one one small correction I put on there is oftentimes people about philanthropy is a lot of money given out in very small pieces. Mm, <laughs> right. The average grant size in this country is about $35,000. Right? Wow. And I so and so the first big thing that that um, Blue Meridian does is say, look, you know, once we figure out that we're going to invest in you, we're going to try and invest in a way that's going to make a huge difference um, and provide, you know, big word, transformative capital to you to help get you on your way um, to sustaining and sustainability, scaling and sustainability. And so that that orientation coming in saying the idea here is to help you get in a position to solve as much of this problem that you're after as you can. Um that shift in mentality and thinking about what does it take to get there, I think is the first first thing, as opposed to trying to figure out how you put together $35,000 checks until you get to the end. That's yeah. number one. Number two is um, uh, one of the things that is true is that the skill set of scaling in the social sector, the knowledge base behind it is underdeveloped relative to other fields, right? Like entire business schools all over the country exist basically to teach people how to grow companies. Yeah. Right. It's some to manage them, but a lot of management is just is about growing. That does not exist in the social sector. And so how you plan for it, how you staff for it, how you build systems to support it. All of those things are things where leaning in to bring people and expertise to the table who can help a visionary leader who is very committed to the mission, who has a great set of skill sets for what they're trying to do, have the other skill sets they need to be able to take what they're doing to another level. That is a critical part of 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 being a support to um, to the folks trying to pursue their visions. The third is, you know, the reality is uh, all this stuff happens in real time. Like your plan is usually wrong from the minute you finish it. Mm-hmm. And so the real partnership in having a person who has been a CEO themselves as a you know managing director at Blue Meridian typically has run something themselves. If not, they've been advisor to folks for many, many years who've been running things and having access to that person and doing a check-in on a regular basis and not in a way that's intrusive. It's kind of like, if this is, if you want to talk, let's talk. If you don't want to talk, you know, we can check in for the quarterly report, but we're trying to build a partnership so we can be helpful. And then for you to be able as a CEO to pick up the phone and go, Okay, guess what? Uh, I'm not ready to talk to anybody about this yet, but here's what's here's what just happened. Um, our, we have a big funder who doesn't like the way we talked about our evaluation data, and so they're threatening to call all the other funders and tell them that we're bad. What do I do about that? Um, first of all, who does that? But anyway, that's yeah. a different <laughs> issue. <laughs> um, um, but having knowing you have someone that you can trust to call and give you advice on it or or have you have you um, th- thought about like what it, what does it look like to navigate these government contracting processes? 
have you done it? Do you know somebody who's done it? And that's where the managing director may or may not know, but they have the entire network of folks within Blue Meridian and all the people we know outside Blue Meridian to draw on. Or we can hire a consultant to be helpful. So having that day-to-day outreach, that week-to-week touch point to help with, okay, I'm not by myself trying to solve this literally hardest problem in the world um, uh, is a really powerful thing. And then the last thing I'll say is something we've not fully leveraged yet, but we need to, is we're building a bigger and broader community of folks who touch on the social sector in different ways, who touch on the the um, the, the um, corporate sector in a variety of different ways, um, and who can help build networks and ecosystems that can help solve these big social problems. And I think we're going to get better and better at using that uh, to the benefit of, of good things happening in the world, too. So... Uh- Blue Meridian, in addition to um, providing resources and different types of resources to support organizations to do what they do best at scale, um, you've also talked about building systems, right, which is different than perhaps addressing a, a particular need. What is a what is a system that works well? Like, can you describe a well-functioning system, you know, or by contrast, a system that is clearly failing that needs revision. Yeah, let's just talk about it first at the, the highest level, and then I'll, I'll describe it at a, at a slightly lower level. Um, the reality is, like everyone, kind of has this vision for their kids, um, whether you're low income or not. We we all kind of realize. I, I, I do this in audiences a lot to say. So, how many of you are parents, and how many of you thought that if you got your kid into the greatest pre- preschool, you'd be done? Right. And everybody goes like, of course not. Right. Like it, right. Preschool, give them, hopefully they can learn to read. Like after they learn to read, hopefully they stay interested in school. Like, and, and that continuum is true for every single child that the path to getting the thriving adulthood has many, many steps along the way. And yet, if you think about it, how many of our systems are actually organized to make sure that a child has what they need? to get from the beginning to the end Mm -hmm. and that those handoffs happen in a way that you actually compound the benefits of what happened before. How many elementary schools talk to the preschool where the kid was to find out what are those things that you discovered about this kid's development needs or their real strengths that we should be building upon? Um, It's very rare. It happens, but it's very rare for elementary school principals to talk to the middle school principal about these kids are coming over and here's the ones that need some additional support in this area. And here's the ones that if you don't engage them quickly, they're going to fall off. And here's the ones that are going to lay the whole whole school and you need to like channel their energy to things that are going to be positive. And like that is not a natural course and neither does the path from secondary into post-secondary or into employment. So that system is broken. And it's broken because the continuum doesn't exist and it's broken because we don't take an each child approach to it. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. Now, uh, let me just go to the very specific thing. Um, let's take applying for any benefit, any benefit that you might need as a low income person to get from the government. You talked about the DMV earlier. Well, try getting access to your Social Security benefits your food stamp benefits, um, getting your stimulus check in the last round if you didn't have file a, file a tax record, file taxes the previous year. Yeah. All of those things we make as hard as possible for people um, who probably have the least amount of time to invest in a system that doesn't work. Like nothing hurts 
low-income people more than bad government. Yeah. Um, And and so those very simple practical things are things that also make a huge difference as well. Yep. So one of the um, one of the portfolios at Blue Meridian is called Place Matters. That is the portfolio that I have the most familiarity with. But it sort of touches on this issue of sort of the intersection of when systems don't work, they are often geocolocated. Um, so can you talk about Place Matters and and what geography, how geography informs your work? Yeah. So um, uh, many folks have become familiar with the work of Raj Chetty from um, uh, the Opportunity Insights that is at Harvard, an economist who basically mapped out um, what it looks like in terms of what's happened with um, uh, upward mobility in the country. And he basically you know, showed that economic mobility has fallen from about 90% of people doing better than their parents in the 1940s to roughly, uh, if you were born after 1985, less than half, 50-50 chance of doing better than your parents. The other thing, though, that he just identified is that if you the, the opportunities that lead to you being able to do better than your parents, if those opportunities are more than about a half mile from your house, they don't really change very much your outcome. Right. So if you have a great school, but it's two and a half miles away, that's so great for you as if if, if it's in your neighborhood. Well, you think about it this way. That plays out all across the country all the time. And for people with resources, you know, if you don't have what you need in your neighborhood, like mom drives you, gets you there, gets you what you need. You come back, tutor shows up at your house, whatever the case might be. But if you don't have resources, you're stuck with what you've got. So that's the first thing. The second part is what we talked about before. Well, if I'm going to help somebody build, I'll call it, I call it the escape velocity to overcome poverty, then I've got to compound the benefit of every step along the way. Like I got to get you, uh, you know, some support when you're in your early ages and identify if you have any development needs so that you can enter preschool ready. And then if you get into preschool, I got to make sure that preschool gets you um, ready for kindergarten. And when I get you to kindergarten, I need to get you to the, and the only way to compound the benefits, if I get an earlier step right, is to make sure the good thing is in your pathway next. Right? Mm. The only way you can do that is by place. Right? Um, virtual stuff, changing some of that, but and why it's so important, but by place. And then the, the last thing is that um, poverty tends to cluster. Right? And so there are in almost every community neighborhoods of intensive poverty that require a different level of support and service and different strategies even to ensure that the kids in those communities actually get what they need and can overcome the overwhelming forces of dysfunction that come with concentrated poverty. And so being not only thinking about place in terms of cities, but really being clear about the importance of focusing in those neighborhoods where poverty is concentrated um, becomes a really important part of this as well. Yep. Um, you know, another aspect um, of your work and that I've I've heard you talk a lot about is racial equity. Um, in a 2020 interview on CNBC, you said, uh, we must address this crisis of racism. We must invest in systems that close inequity gaps, need solutions that meet the scale of those problems. We know what needs to be done, but we fail to scale them. And I, I want the phrase crisis of racism, I just want to pause on for a moment because I hadn't heard it quite 
with that term of art, often when racism is discussed, it's like the thing we all live with. Um, but the crisis aspect of it brings um, clarity to what it really is, as well as I think in the in your work, like there is urgency to scale, right? There is urgency to this work that um, has to be appreciated. And I see it when I, you know, work with folks at Blue Meridian. I, I know the intensity that, that you all bring to your work. And I think our listeners hear it in your voice, uh, the intensity that you've brought to your full career. But can you talk a bit about that, the, the urgency with which you and your colleagues are addressing these, not only, you know, not only because they're, they're, important solutions for the country. These are important solutions for real people, individuals, um, you know, from that are particularly hard hit when they are from communities of color. Yeah. So um, let me just start with just the generic urgency, right? I think what you touched on last is probably the most important point is that, you know, um, there's the saying, you know, if you save one person, you save the world. Right. And so when you keep sight that, you know, even if it's not exactly right, but five more people, 10 more people, a thousand more people do better. Like it mattered to them and potentially their entire lineage afterward. Like that alone ought to drive urgency. The second thing is that, um, when you think about it in a macro sense, the losses, the opportunity costs of the talent that goes to waste, the cycles uh, of repeated dysfunction that show up in families because of the impacts of poverty and oppression. When you think about the millions of people who are lost on a daily basis to that, it ought to generate urgency and be recognized as a crisis. And then you go, okay, now I want to put my wonky hat on. And I go, almost everybody, you know, had that retirement speech where it says, oh, you got to start saving in retirement super early in your career because the compounding effects, blah, 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 right? All right. So imagine, though, that there's one person who starts started saving, let's call it 30 years ago, and another person who's lived to be, hmm, call it 400. And they started saving 400 years ago, or even 100, or even 100. <laughs> and you say, what do those lines look like relative to each other, even if those people are working the same amount? Even if the person who started 30 years ago is working twice as hard. So the reality is that the compounding effects, again, on the on the negative side, to say, of inequity compounds year over year. And what we know is there were structural elements built into our systems that kept black and brown people, but in particular, black people from accumulating wealth in this country. Couldn't own property, couldn't get a mortgage, couldn't apply your GI bill to get an education. Like I can go on and on down the list of things that were not just happening because bad people were doing bad things, but were built into law. Right. Yep. Then you go. The reality is if we don't do something dramatic and urgent. The math says 
at a population level, there will always be individual exceptions, but at a population level, you can't catch up. You can't close the population level gap without dramatic, urgent intervention. And the simple math of it means that every day that we wait to do things about it, it only gets worse and exponentially so. That's a crisis because our society cannot sustain it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, leave that as the last word, Jim. It is uh, It is no surprise to me that everyone from President Barack Obama to Secretary Arne Duncan and Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and others have called on you um, to lead um, some of the most important initiatives we have going on in our country. I am um, such an admirer of yours and of Blue Meridians, and um, I can't thank you enough for making time for us today. Well, I thank you for having me, and I, I, I appreciate all the wonderful things you said, and I, um, I just want you to recognize that in all of my roles, um, what I do most importantly is enable other people to do the really important work. Like, that's what I do for a living. So uh, I appreciate the honor and the privilege of being able to do that. And I appreciate you letting me talk about it. Take care. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.